Well, it is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Uh, One of the the fundamental questions that we wrestle with, I think all of us wrestle with in the lives that God has given us, is this question. What is my purpose? Uh, Teenagers, you are in the midst of trying to discern how God has made you and wired you and what your personal desires are. And some of you older saints are in a season of life that looks radically different than years before. And you're feeling just as lost as a teenager as you navigate how you should leverage this new stage of life. And then as I say that, I realize that I'm a teenager feeling the same thing, trying to navigate the season of life that I'm in with teenagers So whether you are a stay-at-home mother, a young professional pondering next steps, a man or a woman firmly established in a career and a life, we're all asking the same question. What am I supposed to do with my life? What is my purpose? The scriptures are not silent in this regard. Christianity is not simply a set of religious beliefs that punch you a ticket to heaven or extend you forgiveness with no other implication on your life. To be and to reproduce faithful followers of Christ is to have a renewed mind and heart and a renewed life. One that has been dramatically changed from the inside out a renewed life with a renewed purpose. So our main idea or takeaway this morning is simply this. His mission is ours. Now, this likely isn't a shocking statement to anyone who's been at Lakewood recently. The rationale and logical conclusion of being a faithful follower of Christ is that somehow and in some way my life and my purpose is intimately, mysteriously connected to his. The Apostle Paul says as much through his epistles. We have died in Christ. We have risen in Christ. Now, this is all very biblical thinking. And that all sounds very spiritual on a Sunday morning. But we're still left, uh, I'm still left, I think, with something of a disconnect as we try to understand and live out what our union with Christ means. Well, our passage today, as Jesus begins his earthly ministry, it both demonstrates the character and identity of Jesus, this better son, and it also shapes the lens in which you and I understand our lives. So, tomorrow is Monday. Tomorrow we go out and live and operate as Christians. Understanding his identity and mission and its connection to us is critical. It's critical. So please read with me, please. Um, Pretty please. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people so that his fame spread throughout all Syria and they all brought him the sick, all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, the paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Well, my friends, this is God's word. And there's a few considerations I want to point out to us as it relates to Jesus, his identity, and his mission. Well, first, we will consider this ministry of freedom that we see in our passage. And this is seen in our very first section in verses 12 through 17. Now, our scribe, Matthew, he has fulfillment on the brain again. Have you heard that in these last four chapters that we've gone through? Fulfillment, fulfillment, fulfillment. It's all Matthew seems to be talking about. And he narrates one ministry concluding, John the baptizer, and one beginning, Jesus the Christ. And Matthew says that Jesus' geographic ministry, his placement into Galilee, is the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. In fact, in our passage, verses 15 and 16, our direct, direct quotation of the majority of Isaiah 9, 1, and 2. Now, to understand the significance of this geographical setting and its fulfillment, we have to look at a map. And this isn't Dora, kids. We have another map for you. And we have to go back to the Old Testament for a moment. So the screen in front of you, you'll see two maps. A map on the left displaying the boundaries of geography in Jesus' day. And on the right, a map of the boundaries during the nation of the Jewish people as they were divided among the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, specifically, as you look at it, notice how in Jesus' day, the region of Galilee is where the historic tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali once resided. So Jesus, in Matthew 4, he's going into Galilee in this region where Naphtali and Zebulun were. Okay, so now the quote. 
Let's talk about that for a second. This quote of Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. Now often, that's a familiar text, and I tell you why it's familiar, because of Christmas. Usually, Isaiah 7 through 9 is something that we reference during the Christmas season. It's a passage in which God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah that a sign will be given. A child will be born. And in the context of that passage, he says, listen, whether you like it or not, a day is coming when the presence of God will be here and you'll be put to a decision. You'll be put to a decision because the Savior, the agent of restoration, this agent of peace and joy will come. And that sounds great. But question, why does a child need to come? Why is restoration necessary? Well, here I'll quote Isaiah 9.1, and I'll put it on the screen for you as well, and compare it to what's said in Matthew chapter 4. So the text reads this, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. Okay, I got more questions. I don't have a lot of answers, but I got a lot of questions. Why did God bring these two tribes of Israel into contempt? Why did he punish them? Well, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. When the nation of Israel, when they entered into the promised land, into Canaan, they were given very specific commands, a law to fulfill, and even stipulations in how they were to govern their land. Now, Zebulon and Naphtali, those two tribes, they disobeyed God. Now, certainly they weren't the only ones. But a consequence from these tribes turning from God was that God allowed these tribes to be conquered. They were subject to other peoples and to other powers. So Isaiah's promise so long ago was, hey, listen, one day a child will be born. A Savior will come, and that Savior will bring a ministry of freedom. That's what Isaiah 9 is about. So these tribes, because of their sin, they knew nothing in all those years but deep darkness and suppression. They were waiting for freedom. They suffered. They had doubt, fear, and an unknown timing of restoration. These tribes that had become modern-day Galilee were waiting on the promises of God to be fulfilled. So the, the timeline goes like this. Zebulon, Nephtali, sinning, rebelling against God, judgment. Isaiah comes. One day, judgment will pass. Freedom will be given. Fast forward hundreds of years, and we're back in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus' beginning ministry in Galilee, well, I'll just say this, I said this in the first service as well, I noticed, I'm wondering if it's because we're, you know, a northern, midwestern Minnesota crowd here. I noticed no one jumped up and celebrated when I said Jesus went into Galilee. No one got excited. No claps, no cheers, no amens. Uh, in the first service, someone was kind enough to scream out amen when I said that. But Jesus going into Galilee is like a gun firing, alarms sounding, and trumpets blaring. 
Freedom has come. A light has dawned. Hope has arrived. That's Isaiah 1 and 2. So when Jesus' first words come in verse 17, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's a message of Isaiah 9. It's a message of freedom. Turn from darkness to light. Turn from self to Savior. Turn from reigning over your own life and submit yourself under my kingship. The kingdom is at hand because the king has arrived. And here we we begin to see Matthew develop something that he started back in chapter 1. Jesus is the better king and the better David. Matthew, he keeps alluding to and pointing to all these Old Testament figures. Abraham and David and Israel and Moses. And the theme is constant. Jesus is better. But there's two aspects in which this ministry of freedom makes a real significant impact on how we live as Christians this week. So first, Jesus said the kingship of Christ had began. The scriptures teach a present already but not yet aspect to the kingdom of God. Jesus is reigning. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's begun. He's king. He said the kingdom was present, and yet we know biblically and experientially, we haven't seen the fullness of it, we haven't experienced the end of it yet in human history, the consummation, the completion of its coming. So that means that Jesus' message still rings true today. Repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has arrived. And, And we know as Christians that he's lived, died, rose again. The king lives today and is seated on the throne. He is currently reigning over the church and the hearts of his people. Do we live as though he's king? Or are we operating as lords over our own hearts and lives? If Jesus is king, and if the king has a call on your life, the way we speak, the way we act, the way we think, it all falls under the authority of this king. But second, fundamentally, this ministry of freedom, fundamentally, Jesus' ministry is one of freedom as should be ours. Zebulon and Naphtali had turned their hearts from God long ago, and they suffered the consequences of it. Like us, they had found themselves navigating this life, wrestling with sinful, wounded, and broken hearts. Like us, these tribes long for a light to shine, joy to come, and to know the sweet satisfaction of a life enjoyed as they lived with and followed God. You see, the person, the identity, and even the geographical movement of Jesus as he began his ministry was a call to follow a king. A king that could break the chains of whatever enslaves you. What enslaves you? Because like these tribes, we too live in a world that is encompassed by brokenness and darkness. 
And Matthew presents Jesus as the fulfillment of promises of old. Jesus brings freedom to the enslaved. And if you find yourself enslaved by dark sin this morning, there is grace for you in the gospel of Christ. Didn't you read verses 15 and 16? Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah. Light has come. Hope has arrived. This is what we cling to. And this is what we present to an onlooking world as they are asking, does Jesus really change anything? Or do you just go to church on Sunday, sing some songs, and drop a bucket, a dollar in a bucket? Does Jesus do anything? And as Christians, we should be proclaiming, yes, he has a ministry of freedom. May we be more known by a ministry that proclaims freedom rather than ministries that proclaim criticism or pessimism. And if you want to know what's going to turn off a younger generation, real quick, your criticism and pessimism. Jesus proclaims freedom. May the Lord help us do that. Well, we progress in the passage and we see that Jesus not only has a ministry of freedom, but also a ministry of discipleship. And I get this directly from verses 18 through 22. And we see Jesus call the first disciples that would follow him. And at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see him actively engaging in discipleship. That is, bringing others near to God. And there's a few interesting nuggets here. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that at the end, so at the beginning of his earthly ministry, he's making disciples. At the end of his earthly ministry, in Matthew 28, Jesus commands those who follow him to emulate his ministry and go make disciples themselves. The New Testament, my friends, has no category for Christians who don't make disciples, which should be a real challenge for us as we live in a context which often lacks this kind of intentionality, especially for us at Lakewood when we're bold and brash enough to say that our mission is to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. Jesus, we see in this passage, does not ask us to do something that he himself has not first modeled for us. It's part of his identity in ministry. Now, a couple interesting things of note here in these verses. First, notice the kind of men that Jesus calls. Look again at verse 18. He's walking by the sea and he calls a couple of brothers who were fishermen. Jesus, he didn't go to the city center. He didn't find the most educated. He did not find people with even the most religious pedigree. And that's good for some of us because I don't have any. He walked along the sea and he pulled a couple of simple, smelly fishermen to join him. This week in my devotions, I came across this quote. He begins his work along the sea, not the temple. The world of common work, not the world of religious ritual. Who are the disciples of Jesus? Who are the ones that will obey his commands and themselves make disciples and become fishers of the souls of men? 
Who's called to do this great work? Common, normal, average people. Here in our passage, we see Simon and Andrew in verse 18. And then we see James and John in verse 21. And if you've read through the New Testament, one of the common themes that we see in Jesus' life and ministry is the sincere but knuckle-headed friends that follow him. The 12 disciples of Jesus and others who weave their way into the story as we read it are very normal people. Sometimes marked by fear and doubt. Other times misunderstanding God's words and his ways. And even having moments of vibrant faith and joy mixed with sinful tendencies and patterns. Yes, these were normal people. Flawed, but called. Inconsistent, but chosen. Is it any different for us, Lakewood? Are we too not simple men, women, and children? Many of us are not marked by great significance, intellect, or pedigree. We're pretty normal. Even some of us might be a little odd. And that's who Jesus calls. That's who Jesus uses. He doesn't choose to use us or to follow him because we've earned it. And I think, I think this should be a great freedom in the life that we lead. We have freedom in that. Jesus took some fishermen and spoke in a way and used them in a way in which they could understand and connect with. And he does the same with us. Which I think leads me to another interesting note. Look at this phrase again in verse 19. It's well known. Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Some of you might have a note uh, in, your, in the translation of your English Bible next to this verse. And the word men has in it the idea of men and women or all humanity. I will make you fishers of mankind, Jesus says. We should half expect this by now. It's all our scribe Matthew can think of, but he has fulfillment on the brain yet again. And it's not a direct quotation from Jesus' lips, but it's an allusion to another Old Testament text, this time found from the prophet Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 16, speaking of the one-day restoration of Israel, God assures his people that those who've done evil will be brought to justice. But God also promises to send fishers. Fishers who would bring back the people of God. So Jesus is the fulfillment of Jeremiah as his ministry is one of discipleship. Jesus is actively bringing in people to the restoration of all things. And he's going to do it by sending out his fishers to bring in people to the kingdom of God. And friends, make no mistake about it. This is what Jesus is fundamentally about. It's what his kingdom work entails. The kingship of Jesus is not legislated. It is the natural overflow of personal discipleship as his chosen ones, those who he's called, go and live their life. The life that they've been given. And they are fishers of humanity. Those original disciples, as ordinary as they were, they were faithful 
to the call to make Jesus known. The same call has been placed on you and I. We are part of a rich history that goes back to the days of Jesus. We see in Jesus' very identity and actions that he is primarily after the hearts of humanity. Jesus did heal the sick. He did call out evil. He did challenge the hypocrites. He did confound the so-called wise. But what is his ultimate ministry? What is he fundamentally about? A ministry of discipleship. A ministry that brought those who were far from God near. He's after the souls of people made in God's image. So our programs, our social concerns, our buildings, and clever ideas for real change in our families and in our communities and this world, that's all fine. It's good. But are we first and foremost about seeing our lives as a way to follow and leverage ourselves to see souls brought into the warm embrace of God through Christ. When those first brothers were invited to the call of life as a ministry of discipleship, this life of following the person of Jesus, our text says they responded immediately. I wonder if you and I would respond in the same way to a call of discipleship. Children, kids, will you immediately respond to the call to disciple your siblings, your friends at school? Kids, will you help mom and dad follow Jesus? You know you can disciple them? Fathers and mothers, Has it been a dry season of intentionality and pursuing your kids' hearts? That's okay. Press in and fish. Fish afresh for their souls to be drawn close. Singles, God has you in a season to leverage time and resources to disciple the whole church. We need you. We need you to be faithful with time and money and your desires so that you would be about a ministry of discipleship to us. Older saints, biblically speaking, you're the most important demographic of the church. The older are to lead and guide the younger. So older saints, how are you actively discipling and fishing for young souls in this church. We need you. If you are not engaging in discipling children and young parents and those in middle age who are walking the very same roads that you have faithfully for so many years, the question is, why? Why aren't you doing this? And really, that question should challenge each of us here this morning. If I am a faithful follower of Christ, why am I not reproducing? Why am I not following this command on my life? Why am I not following his example that I see here in this passage? And and here's the good news. Several of you are seeking to be faithful in this. 
and those of us who are lacking here or can grow here, well, there is grace for us as we strive to be faithful in this. Well, lastly, here in our passage, I want us to see that Jesus has a ministry of presence. And this is going to inform how we take communion this morning. Yes, his life and ministry, it proclaims freedom, and it's about discipleship of souls being brought close to God. And, and, Jesus is not at a distance as he does these things. We see this ministry of presence in our final three verses, in verses 23 through 25. Now, there's a lot that could be said here in these verses. Jesus, he certainly is a busy guy. He's teaching in synagogues. He's proclaiming the kingdom. He's demonstrating he's the better David in both his teaching and his healing. And the crowds are flocking to him from all regions, and his fame is spreading. It's interesting to read some scholars who speculate as to why perhaps there was such a concentration of brokenness in this region. So read with me again, please, the second half of verse 24. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Now, I've, I've heard and read a couple interesting things. One thought is that this is actually, even today, quite a normal experience. People today are still marked by living in darkness, spiritual oppression, and grave illness. And they posture, as they say this, our Western civilized world works hard to minimize this reality and presence in our midst. They send it away. We send those with diseases and pains to the hospital. We don't live among them nearly as much as those in the first century did. If someone has some kind of spiritual oppression or battle, our Western world explains it away, maybe in some medical way, or puts them in an institution, perhaps. So the idea that it's still going on, but we're numb to it, I think has legitimacy. In our 21st century Western minds and lives, are we too proper to recognize how needy the people are among us? Like how needy they really are. I dare say that we are perhaps too proper to see. And showing up on a Sunday morning pretending things are fine each week probably doesn't help. But it's also been postured that this was a unique season and a time of darkness and oppression just in this specific land. Satan being aware of the presence of the true king arriving, well, the devil had been at work. Could the evil in Herod's heart as he sought to kill Jesus as an infant, could that be the persuasion of evil? Certainly. Was the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness an attempt of the devil to bring Jesus' future ministry to a halt? Obviously. Could Satan bring darkness and disease and oppression to a land which Jesus was about to minister in order to attempt to slow him down? It's a fair argument to make. What makes this so significant as we consider Jesus' identity is this. 
Notice what is implicit and assumed in Matthew's description of this early season of ministry. Jesus is not teaching from a satellite campus. And I'll confess that's a very snarky comment. But he's there. He had something better than a law and teaching that he even gave through the medium of prophets. Jesus is teaching. The God-man is declaring God's word and he's in the synagogue. Not just in his teaching, but his healing. We do see this in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry, but, but usually it's an exception. Jesus, he can heal from a distance. He doesn't have to be there. He could simply speak healing into existence from the other side of the world. But here in our passage, the sick and the afflicted are brought to him. He looked at them in their eyes. He held their hand. He embraced them as they came, desperate, needy, and looking for a light to shine in a dark season of their life. The presence of Jesus, fully God and fully man, is one of the distinctives that sets Christianity apart from every other religion. God is not simply up there, the big guy in the sky. He's not distant or cold or angry. He's not lacking in understanding of the human condition. Jesus came. He was present. He served and ministered as the divine human to broken humans. And so it was with those first disciples who followed Jesus. And so it is to be with us, brothers and sisters. We are called to proclaim to our own hearts and to the hearts around us that Jesus is near and present. He still ministers by presence today. The scriptures teach that now that Jesus has ascended to heaven one day to return, he's still near to his people. Those who believe in his identity that Matthew has laid out for us, those who believe Jesus is the Son of God who lived and died and rose again to bring us new hearts and a new life. Those who believe that know the presence of God. God in you. God with you. God for you. So whatever you're going through in this season of life, Jesus is near as you cling to him. The Spirit of God is given and indwells God's people. And this has obvious implications for us. Remember, His mission is ours. We've been called to be and to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. We faithfully follow this kind of ministry of presence. Telling someone you will pray for them is great. Consider that God is calling you to more than that. He's calling you to be near the brokenhearted. He's calling you to be near the sick. He's calling you to bring people into your home and into your life to love on them as he does. He's calling us to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
And my friends, this is what we celebrate actually on a communion Sunday. Communion is a remembrance of the oneness of Christ, the presence of Christ. So some of you, I'll ask those who are serving communion to come forward at this time. Some of you come from faith traditions where maybe it's said and taught that in communion, it literally becomes, as you eat and drink, it becomes the body of Christ, and you're actually eating his flesh and, and drinking his blood. But that's actually not a fair reading of the scriptures. And Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10. So I'm trying to say two things at the same time. I'm trying to say it's not literally his flesh and blood, but there is something of a ministry of presence here. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says this. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Communion is an application of the ministry of presence that we see in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus is present. There's a participation. He's with us as we take communion. We're reminded as we take bread and juice, and it feels real. You, you taste it. You feel it. So, too, is the realness of God, the presence of Christ in your life as you cling to him. But did you hear the second part of 1 Corinthians 10? It's not simply just a remembrance of what Christ has done for us and our participation with him. Paul says it's a participation. It's a ministry of presence with one another. Communion is the physical tangible reminder that God is present and so are your brothers and sisters. So too is the body of Christ. We are supposed to be in this together, loving, serving, encouraging, embracing. So for those of you that have trusted in Jesus, if he is your Lord and Savior, if you are faithfully following him, this meal is for you to be reminded of the presence of God in your life and the presence of the body of Christ, even in our gathering today. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our prayer. That you would be real and near. That as we remember the work of Jesus, you would give our lives great purpose as we follow Jesus' mission. Oh Lord, allow the quiet moments in our heart and souls now to reflect, to think deeply, thank you for the ministry, the work, the life, and the death of Jesus. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.